Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you today, much like your children, just coming before you, Lord, to, to hear your word, and we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would not just fill our heads with more knowledge, but God, we need you to do a work in our hearts and our and our wills, Lord, in our lives. Oh God, we pray that you would expose those things that we trust that are not of you. God, that you would cause us to repent and lean upon you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, O God, for the hope that we have. And we pray now that you would speak your word to us. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we're coming to the opening verses of James and we've uh, James opens his letter by talking about trials, which I think is a rather interesting topic to, to start out with. And there are those who would say, well, the reason why he's starting out with the trials is because that's what the, his audience was going through, was the difficulties. And that's, that's uh, I'm sure, true. But I think also James shares with us a, a, a mindset, a, a view of the world that helps us to see the ups and downs of life correctly. That we might be able to understand the trials and the difficulties that we go through from a heavenly perspective, from God's point of view. Because for us, I think we see things way differently than the Lord does, especially when it comes to the trials of our lives. Now there's a, there's a poem that my mother-in-law likes, and I don't know the title of it, and I can't quote it to you, but it, it, it has with it the idea in this poem that that God is weaving this tapestry before us and that from our view, we're sort of seeing the bottom of the tapestry, you know, and so all we get to see is the gnarled threads and, and the strings that are just sort of dangling down. But one day, one day when we get to heaven, we'll get to see that tapestry from the top and see the beauty of what the Lord has been doing in our lives. And there's much that that's what James is trying to do to the church is to help us to understand that there is a different view of the trials than what we might uh, see as we go through them. And so that we need to see them from his perspective. And so James says in verses 2 through 4 that we looked at last week, he teaches us that the trials and tribulations in life are designed to refine our faith and to bring us to maturity and completeness in Jesus Christ. Trials cannot destroy our faith. They only test our faith to prove it genuine. And uh, that's where we talked about last week about how God addresses the dross or the impurities in our life in one sense as we go through these trials. And really, we cannot be mature in Christ without that sense of trials. So through the exercise of our faith in Christ, and oftentimes those trials and those difficulties that we go through are not just events. Oftentimes, they're something that occur over a period of time. And so it truly is sort of an exercise of our faith over time uh, and an ongoing patience with those circumstances of God's providence that we are able to count these things joy. And we count them joy, which may sound sort of unusual at first, but we do so because they are the means by which we enter more deeply and surely into the meaning and the scope of our salvation. In other words, it says, you know, the Christian faith is not just a ticket from hell to heaven. You know, it's not just, oh, well, this is, a, a, um, 
you know, something that's our salvation is something that's going to occur in the future. But our salvation is is now in a sense that we are walking uh, God's life. You know, he has saved us and redeemed us to live as he has created us and redeemed us to do. And so as we go through these difficulties in these trials, we know God more intimately and we have that possibility of uh, knowing him. Uh, like I said, very intimately, which is important for us, I think, as we're going through the, the sufferings and the trials of life, because there's, there's nothing, I think, more difficult than to think that the suffering and the things that you're going through in life have no purpose or no meaning. But James wants his hearers to hear there, there is a purpose. There is something that God is uh, actually accomplishing in our lives. But James doesn't stop there. You know, he could have just said, hey, this is what God has in mind. Suck it up. Just move on. But he doesn't do that. He, he continues on because we, we need, uh, we need uh, to hear what God has to say about trials. Because as Alec Moter, he's a, he's a minister in England. Well, he's now a minister in heaven, I guess. He's now gone on to glory. But he served in England for many years. And he described well, I think, the struggle that we often have as we go through trials as Christians. And he said... You, you're in the thick of such a tangle of circumstances. And I think that's a great picture. Isn't that what our trials feel like? They're just sort of a, a tangle of circumstances. He said that there is no way it can seem to be anything other than a purposeless mess. You know, if I might go back to that illustration with the weaving, oftentimes you look at that. And you look at those circumstances and you think, I don't see what God's purpose is in this. And it's very difficult to do that. But then he goes on and he goes, there is no stretch of the imagination by which it even begins to look like a stepping stone to maturity. That oftentimes those trials that we go to, we just don't see how God is using that to mature us. It, they just seem hard. They just seem like uh, difficulties. And so while we know from Scripture that trials are, are meant to aid us in our growth and spiritual maturity with Christ and uh, our growth in our spiritual walk with the Lord, we often struggle in the midst of that storm because of that. So while we know that what God's will is for the trials in our life, we oftentimes, I think, struggle with hopelessness to do his will in the midst of those trials. And, and sometimes that leads us to despair or discouragement, even in our Christian walk with the Lord. And, uh, you know, you think about that, you think, why do we struggle so much? Why do we struggle so much? I mean, God has told us he has a purpose. Well, I think John Calvin uh, helps us a little bit with that, with the insight he said. He said, our reason and our feelings are averse to or against the thought that we can be happy in the midst of evils. In other words, he's saying that everything within us naturally rebels against the idea that we can be happy in the middle of troubles. You know, that, to use the illustration I used last week with the ledger and, and how there's a debit side and a credit side, we put all of our experiences in life in one of those two categories. And oftentimes we put trials in the debit category because we see those things as liabilities. But in God's economy and in God's plan, actually those trials fit on the credit side of that ledger. That they are actually very positive things and they are good things. But that's hard for us because by nature, we just naturally see those things as uh, a negative. And that's why then we begin to ask the wrong questions when we go through those trials. We ask things like, why is this happening to me? 
Which, you know, sometimes God answers that question. Lots of times he does not. Sometimes we won't know until we get to heaven. But as we begin to understand from God's perspective what those trials are to accomplish and to do, we then begin to ask the right questions. That things like, well, how can I understand this trial from God's perspective? Or, or how can I navigate through this storm in such a way as to bring glory to God? Or, or how can this trial help me to grow in my spiritual maturity? Those are the kind of things we can begin to ask as we understand that this is actually something that, that God is doing. And he is doing so as our loving Heavenly Father because he cares so much for us. There's a, a, a pastor who tells of a woman in his congregation who was going through great difficulties. She had a stroke herself. Her husband had become blind. Then he was put in the hospital where as far as they knew, he was going to die. And so the, the pastor saw that woman at church and he was a very loving pastor. And, and so he assured her that he was praying for her. Well, she then looked at him and she says, well, what are you asking God to do? Well, it sort of took him back. He's like, uh, well, uh, uh, he said, well, I, you know, I, I'm asking God to help you and to, to give you strength and stuff. And she goes, well, I appreciate that. But she goes, I want you to pray one more thing, if you would. And he's like, OK. And she said, uh, pray that I'll have the wisdom not to waste all this. Pray that I'll have the wisdom not to waste all this. You see, she understood that God was doing something in her life, and she wanted to understand what that was. And we need the Lord to bring us to a grasp of that truth as well. We need What we need is a, a believing heart. And as James knows, and as he says, as a very loving shepherd, James uh, says in verses 5 through 8 to this congregation he loves so much, he goes, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And, and if we have any hope of persevering under trials the way that James instruct us to in this opening chapter, we must have God's wisdom. We must have the ability to see life as God intends it and to act accordingly. And James knew that, that, um, that we would need God's perspective to do that, that we might mature in him. So I want us to look at this passage and I want us to see three things as we look at this. First of all, we need to realize our need for wisdom. You know, he says that in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. Now, James knows as a pastor that his congregation is not able to maintain a joyous attitude uh, regarding their trials, even though that's what God commands them to do in verse 2, unless they have more than just their human faculties. They don't have what they need in and of themselves to be able to weather these trials. Uh, they must look to God. Look... Look at verse 4. I want to I show you something that's really interesting. Uh, in verse 4 it says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see that? And then notice how he starts verse 5. If any of you lacks. In other words, he says, One day, when these trials accomplish their purpose in you, 
and you see that spiritual maturity coming and that completeness, you're not going to lack anything. But you know what? Today is not that day. Today you are still lacking. As a matter of fact, you lack wisdom. And so he, God you know, uses these trials in our lives uh, to help us. Now, what, what does he mean by wisdom? You know, we've been reading through the book of Proverbs and, and our reading of the law, so we've gotten a little bit of that. And even today, we, we understood a little bit more about what it means to be wise. But sometimes we use that word in ways maybe that the Bible doesn't use it. You know, have you ever said anything or heard somebody say, you know, I sure need God's wisdom to know what to do in these circumstances? You know, but that sort of implies that wisdom is really just knowledge. That's, I just need to know more. You know, but wisdom is not just mere knowledge. Knowledge has to do with facts and with information. You know, it might be more accurate, I guess, if we said in that statement, I sure need God's knowledge to know what to do. That's probably would be uh, more appropriate. Because wisdom is the understanding needed to live a life for the glory of God. Wisdom is functioning in obedience to the will and the word of God. So there's a sense in which wisdom is more of an action. It's not just knowing something. You know, it begins with the fear of the Lord and then moves to obeying the Lord. So wisdom has more to do with the application of knowledge. It is being ready to submit to God as we endure trials under the conviction that God is doing this for our good. So we, we are in great need of wisdom. Now, by nature, though, we may not recognize that. Because I think by nature, all of us seek to be self-sufficient, at least to some degree. You know, we want to appear to have it all together. You know, it's probably where we feel more comfortable in life. If people look at us and see us as competent, I think we go, oh, this is a good day. You know, when our weaknesses sort of show through, sometimes that's a little difficult for us. So I think it's not uncommon, even for Christians, to see dependence is a weakness. Now, we know that that's not right, though, as Christians, right? You know, we're supposed to depend upon the Lord. So I think there is a sense in which we're like, okay, we're okay with that concept of dependence as long as, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, as long as we have some sense of control. When we're out of control and dependent, that's like the worst. You know, that's where we oftentimes struggle. You know, but oftentimes that's where God takes us and that's where we go in the midst of trials and difficulties. That God takes us to a place that we are not only dependent upon him, but we are out of control. And, and the reason we all struggle with this sense of wanting to have that sense of control is, is that pride is common to the human heart. We all struggle with pride to, to some degree. And so even in that pride, I think, oftentimes as we come to those difficulties and those trials, we think that, honestly, my greatest need is I'm just lacking a little something. And if I just maybe had some good advice from someone, if I could just talk to a friend, if I could just get some more information, I think I can make it through this trial. And so we turn to people that we know and we're like, hey, I need your help. I'm going through this difficult time. And, and we have a tendency to look more on a human plane and a horizontal level than we do to look vertically to God. Because I think that there's probably more pride and self-sufficiency in us than what we realize. But the Bible says that what we need is we need wisdom. 
We need wisdom from above. Actually, Proverbs 2, verse 6. You can turn to Proverbs if you want. Um, Proverbs 2, verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. So that's where wisdom comes from. It doesn't come from us. It comes from the Lord. As a matter of fact, uh, Proverbs 2, 6 goes on to say, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And then that's why Solomon then just one chapter later, if you want to turn over to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. And I know many of you probably could quote this by heart, which is great. Uh, that's why Solomon says, trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. Not most of your heart. Not 99% of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And just to make this clear, and do not lean on your own understanding. You know, you can't do it. You need God's wisdom. So do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. So that's what God calls us to do. And when, So when you're going through trials and when you're going through difficulties, don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. So to come to God, we must be humble ourselves and admit that uh, we do not know what we need in order to go through these trials. I think it's uh, a lot like the church in Laodicea. I, I just, you know, I mean, I probably am way more like the church of Laodicea than I want to admit. But I think it's interesting that when you read about that church in Revelation chapter 3, the way that the church, you know, you ever see those cartoons where it's like, you know, uh, this is what the husband, uh, how he sees this situation. This is how the wife sees this situation. And then it's, this is what it's really like. You know, I think there's a little bit of that going on with the church at Laodicea. They saw themselves a certain way, but Jesus saw them another way. In uh, Revelation 3.17, we read that, that they saw themselves as rich and having no need. And yet, this is how Revelation describes the church at Laodicea, that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And so a prerequisite to obtaining wisdom from God is, first of all, to recognize that we lack that wisdom, that we don't have that wisdom, that we cannot get that wisdom here upon earth, but we must go to the Lord. And so we read, he goes on in verse 5, he says, And if you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So we could safely say here that trials uh, is a way of enhancing our prayer life, I guess, because we do need to come to the Lord. They drive us to our knees. And, and we need to understand that, you know, whenever we're going through trials, the place to go is to God. And, not, not only, and that's not just a suggestion. James actually gives that as a command. Let him ask God. That is some, a command that we are to do. And what are we asking God for is wisdom. You know, as we'll see later on in James chapter 3, verse 17. You know, it's wisdom that comes from above. Pure, first of all, pure and peaceable. So, as we come to God and we are asking Him for wisdom, we're asking for what is the right thing to do, but we're also asking God really more than that, okay? If knowledge is facts... And wisdom is application, then to pray for wisdom is to pray for more than just knowing what to do in the midst of trials. 
It is a prayer, praying and asking God to enable us to do those things that we know that we're supposed to do. So in this context, in this passage, basically the prayer for wisdom uh, is a prayer asking God to enable us to joyfully receive his works of providence. That as we see God working in our lives and bringing those trials, that we might do exactly what he commands us to do in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you, count, when you encounter trials of many kinds. So take, for example, if you would, somebody wrongs you, and, and let's just say they treated you unfairly, and let's just say you're innocent, and you didn't do anything to provoke this, you're just, you're just being treated wrongly. You know, our natural instinct is to do what? is to focus on what that person did. I cannot believe they said this about me, or they did this, or they told others about this. And so we get very upset, and we can have a tendency to be drugged down as we think about those things that were said about us. But when we, as we pray for wisdom, we are asking God to enable us to look to Him for His hand in these circumstances and in these trials, so that we may discern what He's teaching us through these uh through this burden, this trial, this struggle that we're going through. It's just like the woman that I talked about earlier, where she asked her pastor to pray that she might not waste this trial. It's that idea as we come uh, in the midst of our trials that we are calling out to the Lord and saying, Lord, let me not focus on what this brother or sister did to me or what they said about me and how they dishonored my name. But, oh, God, I pray that you would give me the strength to endure this trial, that it would accomplish the purpose that you have, that you are doing in my life to make me like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> so we need to let our troubles drive us to God and to drive us to prayer asking God to see this trial from his perspective and how he's using this trial in our lives and praying that we might be joyful in the midst of that. So then what is the response that we should expect from God in the midst of our prayers? Well, he goes on and he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach? So not only does God give but God gives generously, pouring out his blessings on us as unmerited and undeserved on our part. God gives to us immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, as Ephesians 3.20 says. And not only is God's character one of generosity, but he answers our prayer without reproach. That is, another way to say that maybe is without finding fault. Now, what, what does a fault finder do? You probably have had people in your life like that. It seems like all they do is find faults, right? You know, they just keep bringing up our past mistakes. They harp on the things that we've done wrong. And, and they wrestle with that. But what James says here is to say God answers prayers without bringing up our past failures and holding them up as reasons for not giving us help when we ask for it. If anybody would have the right to focus in on our faults, it would be our God. But he says, that's covered. That's covered under the blood of my son. And so he comes not only to give us what we need in that wisdom, but to give to us generously. Do you know people who give generously? I mean, cost is no big deal to them. They want to give you and they want to give you more. But, but how often as we come to God and we approach him, do we have a much different attitude 
How often do we approach God with the attitude that we're waiting for the other shoe to drop? You ever felt like that? I have to admit to you, I probably have lived half my life with that kind of mentality. That Okay, things are going good now, but I know at some point in time, I'm going to get what I deserve. You know, God's going to, it's coming. I'm just waiting for it. You know, and there's a sense in which that just sucks all the joy out of your life. All the goodness that the Lord is doing in your life, you just totally are blind to it because all you can focus on is, is what you think is going to happen. That's not an attitude that understands that our God is a generous God. He is a great and generous God. Or, or maybe we're so overwhelmed by our sin and under such a burden of guilt and shame that we could never imagine God so loving us so much that he could be extravagant with his love and generous to us. But that's what James says here. James says, brothers and sisters, that's the character of your God that you worship. When you come to God in prayer in the midst of your trials, understand that he is a generous God who gives us beyond what we think we deserve. He gives us wisdom. God will walk us through these trials. He is the one who brings these trials into our lives to sort of burn off that dross, the impurities of our lives, and, and he's the one that's bringing them for a purpose. And so we need to come asking in faith. And that's the last thing I want us to see, that as we come, the way we're to come is to ask in faith. Um, because how we approach the Lord is in, important. God is to be approached in the, in the way that he prescribes you know, you hear people talk today about God in ways that are sort of flippant and just, you know, like God's my, he's my big buddy upstairs in the sky, you know, type thing. Or, you know, yo, Lord, what's happening? You know, and, and just a, a sense of great irreverence to the Lord. But God calls us to approach him in a way that he prescribes. I think about Moses as he comes across the burning bush. You know, the Lord doesn't just say, OK, come on, Moses. But he says, take off your shoes because you are on holy ground. And so Moses, he does approach the Lord that way. Well, James tells us here how to approach the Lord. And he says, but let him ask in faith. God wants us as we come to him in prayer to come in faith. And you know, the book of Hebrews reminds us that faith is so important. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews eleven six, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith or believing is the essential condition of prayer. Uh, do we believe that what God has revealed about himself is true? He calls us to believe that. Uh, do we truly believe that if we come to God in the midst of our trials, that he will not only give us what we need, but that he will give to us generously the wisdom that we need in that trial, that that he is um, that he is so loving in that, and you know I think oftentimes Christians sort of get confused too uh, about the place of prayer uh, as we're praying to the Lord, because sometimes you hear Christians say that. That prayer is powerful. Have you ever heard Christians say that? Maybe you've even said that yourself. I know I have. I'm like, wow, there's real power in prayer. You know, actually, there's no power in prayer whatsoever. There is power in the God that we pray to, but not in prayer itself. Prayer is not like some, you know, magical incantation that if you just give the right form or you say things just the right way, that somehow grace is dispelled upon us, 
you know, as his people. That's not at all the case. You know, but we come to God and we put our faith and our trust in him, knowing that he is who he says he is and that his promises are true. That if he has promised something, that it will happen. And so as we come to him in the midst of our trials, we must come knowing that he is a God that is generous and that he will grant us wisdom in the midst of those trials. And that's what James is wanting us to see. And he, t he guards us against being doubtful. Because, I mean, really, what is doubt but the opposite of faith? You know, doubt is a fundamental lack of faith in the Lord and his promises. And he said, anyone that is like that is really like, you know, the, the seas that are being, you know, tossed here to and fro. You know, real prayer has to be preceded by some conviction of the truth that God is who he says he is. And he will do what he promises to do. And so he says in verse 8, that the man who doesn't come to God in faith, who does not, who is uh, doubting him, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So as we come to the Lord wavering or in indecision, uh, it's just fatal to effective prayer. You know, just as no man can serve two masters, so prayer cannot flow from a divided heart. We have to come to God with a single-mindedness. Such a heart that's divided is unstable, it says, James says, in all of its way. It should not be surprised us that we should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. So this is not because the Lord is, is cruel, withholding his blessings. It's just that there's nothing for God to answer if we come in a double-minded way. And I was trying to think of an illustration, and this is a lame one, I'm sure, but it's the best I could come up with. Imagine that you're a parent or a grandparent or uh, an aunt or an uncle and, you know, this kid comes to you and says, would you give me this? Well, as a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, yes, you want to give them that. Actually, you want to spoil them. Although, you know, you're not supposed to, but you, you want to do that. I mean, you already are ready to give to them generously. Okay, but right after they ask you for what it is that they want, they then start saying something like, yeah, but but I know you probably won't give me that because, you know, because I've done thus and such or, you know, for these reasons here. And so you're sitting there thinking, OK, I want to give you this. You know, I actually I want to give you more than this that you're asking for. But, you know, you're just sitting there sort of talking to yourself out of it. And it's like, so what do you want me to do? And this this child is like, you know, wrestling here in, in essence. And and, you know, uh and so you become frustrated because you desire to grant their request, but they're not believing that you're going to do it. And I think in some ways it could be the same way with God. We come and we ask God to do these things, but in our minds we're thinking, oh, but he won't do that. God won't do that, you know, and, uh, and we don't trust him. But he calls us to come and to trust him because God doesn't bless at random. He simply wants us to come and to ask him and to trust him, and he will answer that. Uh, Thomas Manton, one of my favorite Puritans, he once said, he said, none walk so evenly with God uh, as that they are assured of the love of God. Okay, none walk so evenly with God. In other words, without waffling back and forth, they just walk steadily. None walk so steadily as they that are assured of the love of God. And as we come to him in the midst of our trials, we must come with a believing heart 
knowing that God is good, knowing that if we come to him, he commands us to come and ask for wisdom, that he will give that wisdom and that we can trust him. And maybe you're here today and, and you're finding it hard to believe God. Maybe you're going through a trial or a difficulty and you're struggling. But James gives us a picture of a generous God. And do you know how generous God is? Do you? Let me tell you, Paul puts it so well. He said, He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. If you want to know how generous your God is, then look to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross shows us the generosity of God. And so, do you wonder if he'll give you when you ask? Look at the cross. If God the Father is willing to give up his son, whom he loves so much, would he then withhold anything else from us? No. That's how generous God is. He crushes his son at the cross so that the trials that we go through will not crush us. Jesus died in your place and he died in my place that we might walk with him. Uh, Billy Graham, um, who's now at home with the Lord. I'm envious, but he's at home with the Lord. Uh, you know, he recounted a, a story of a friend of his that was going through some difficult times during the Great Depression and this poor guy lost everything. He lost his job. He lost his wealth. He lost his wife. He lost everything. And he was walking along the streets of, of New York, and he saw some workmen that were working on one of the city's you know, great cathedrals. And there was this workman that was shaping this stone very carefully. And Billy Graham's friend looked at this guy, and he said, So what are you doing? And he said, Well, he goes, I'm shaping this down here so that it will fit up there. And he points to the steeple on the cathedral. And Billy Graham said, when his friend heard that, he was filled with tears because he realized that what was happening in his life by God's sovereign grace was that God was shaping him down here in the midst of his trials that he might fit up there with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, the trials that we go through are signs to us that we are his and that we are walking that same path that the Son of God walked and that one day, when all is said and done, that we will fit up there with him because of the work that he is doing in our lives. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we meditate upon the word that was preached today. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would help us not only to understand what we have heard, but God, help us to, to put into practice these things this week. Lord, in the midst of the ups and downs and the, the trials and the sufferings that we go through, Lord, may we be quick to come to you with hearts that are believing that you are good God and generous that you give us all that we need. We just pray for your wisdom uh, in our lives, Lord, not only individually, but, but even together, God. We pray that as we function as a church, as we exist in, in this world, in this community, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom in the midst of the trials uh, to trust you, that your name might be glorified and that you might sanctify us as a church. We thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen.